So as we look here at Philippians, uh, we're going to look through each chapter and uh, just kind of go through each section and look at uh, the main overall themes that Paul is mentioning here. As we said, it's a very personal letter. Paul spends a lot of time talking about his personal situation. Of course, Paul is in prison when he is writing this letter. So you know his situation is not an easy situation that he's in, considering that he's sitting in prison. But also, the situation of the Philippians is not an easy situation because they are suffering persecution as well. So that's one thing that brings Paul and the Philippians together, is they are both suffering persecution for the cause of Christ. And Paul sees that as they are sharing together in fellowship. Now, that's one of the things that we'll talk about as we go through this letter is that a lot of times we think of fellowship as, you know, having a cup of coffee before service or just getting together and and talking or things like that. But Paul's definition of fellowship in the book of Philippians is much different and much deeper. When they are sharing the gospel with others who had never heard it, they're having fellowship in the gospel. When they're suffering persecution, they are sharing together in suffering, and that's the sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. So it's those kind of things that really have bonded Paul and this church together. And their friendship and their partnership and their fellowship is central to understanding the tone of this letter and understanding Paul's desire for them. So that's why Paul goes into a lot of detail about his life and his situation because they care about what Paul is going through. Uh, And he cares about them. He cares about their well-being. He cares about their fruit and their faith and their level of joy, even as they're suffering and going through these difficulties. So in the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians, in the first 11 verses, we have a salutation and a thanksgiving and a prayer. So we see here, because of his friendship with the Philippians, um, Paul designates himself and Timothy as servants of of Christ, rather than asserting his apostleship. Usually, Paul introduces his letters this way, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul was speaking to the church at Galatia, that was a letter where Paul was very forceful. But Paul introduced this way, Paul, an apostle, not by the will of man or not by man, but by God. And he's establishing in the book of Galatians, I am an apostle called by God. Therefore, I have the authority of an apostle as has been given by Jesus. So my word and my gospel that I'm preaching to you of Jesus has authority in it. And he takes a very uh, authoritarian tone to the book of Galatians because he's coming against the false teaching that's going on in the church. But here, Paul does not assert his apostolic authority. Paul does not come with, hey, I'm I'm the apostle, I'm here to straighten everything out, you need to listen to me. Paul introduces himself, along with Timothy, as a servant of Christ. And he does that because of his friendship with um, the Philippians. So he addresses it to the holy people, or to the saints who are Ephesus, along with the overseers, the 
and the overseers and the deacons. So this church, as we said last week, was well-established. Uh, they weren't all new believers here. They had been established for a while because they had set up a form of church government in the church. And then his usual salutation, grace and peace uh, to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then as we come to verses 3 through 8, he gives a prayer of thanksgiving. And then in verses 9 through 11, a prayer of petition. And this kind of sets the tone for some of the major themes that will come out of this book. So let's begin reading and point some things out. Beginning in verse number 3, uh, he thanks God for his remembrance of them. In verse number 3, uh, in all his prayers, he prays for them, praying always with joy for them. And he prays with joy because of verse number 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the, Paul and this church has a long history together. And as we go through uh, this work in the gospel that they're sharing with Paul, uh, you see it in verses 4 and 5. Uh, if you look down at verse number 7, um, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. So there is a sharing together in the mission of the gospel, and there is a sharing together in the fellowship of the sufferings that they have together. And therefore, Paul continuously has them in his heart. And then notice going in verse number 8, just listen to some of the, the, the verbiage here in verse number 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He has a deep affection for this church. And he has a great affection for the people here and a great compassion for them as they are suffering along that, uh, with their compassion for Paul as Paul is suffering as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he begins with this wonderful prayer and you can really see the intimacy of their relationships. Continuing on um, verses 12 through 26, Paul begins by telling them how things are with his life. Uh, and the, reflect, uh, the reflections on his imprisonment and his current situation, which has a direct implication on the advancement of the gospel. So Paul begins by telling them how things are with himself. His own sufferings at the hands of Rome has furthered the gospel through both friends and enemies, which in Paul's mind is a cause for rejoicing. The ground for such rejoicing is that Paul's life is not determined by circumstances, but by his relationship to Christ. And that was our major theme we saw last week, the theme of joy and rejoicing. That our dedication to Christ, our joy in the gospel, is not determined by our outward circumstances, but it's determined by our relationship with Christ through the gospel. So let's look in uh, verses 12 following a little bit more about what Paul says about his situations. He says in verse number 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So Paul even says, me being persecuted and put in prison is actually helping the cause of the gospel. And he mentions, as a result, I have become clear uh, throughout the whole, uh, has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. He is even a witness for Jesus while he is in prison. 
so that everybody from the palace guards onward know that Paul is there not because he's a murderer or a thief, but because he is a preacher of the gospel. And then he says this, he says in verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's saying, so because they saw my bravery, because they saw Paul's boldness in preaching the gospel and being able to put in prison, it stirred other believers up to be even more bold for the cause of Christ and to cause them to preach the gospel with more fervor out in the world. So Paul says, that's why he says, it's good you know, that I'm here and the gospel is still advancing. The gospel hasn't stopped just because Paul is suffering. The gospel hasn't stopped just because Paul is in prison. His example of his bravery and boldness has led the other Christians to be brave and bold as well. So those are those that uh, like Paul and see his example. But then there's another group of people that Paul begins to talk about here. In verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. There are some that is preaching Christ for their own gain. While Paul is preaching Christ, giving of himself to others. Paul's saying, so there's a whole other group of people that they see me and they're envious and jealous. Maybe they're jealous of you know, his planting churches or jealous of you know, the people he's raising up. For whatever reason, they are envious and jealous of Paul. And really that makes them preach the gospel more because they want to, they have their own selfish ambition. And in and of itself, you know, that's not a good thing. Paul, in just a few moments, is going to warn the Philippian church to not live out of selfish ambition. But in this cause, listen to Paul's mindset. He says here, um, not sincerely, in verse number 17, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? What does it matter that they're against me? What does it matter that they're trying to gain an advantage over me? What does it matter they're envious or jealous? He says the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. He said even those that preach Christ out of selfish ambitions, if they're preaching Christ, the word of God will not return void. You know, that, that, that's how you know, we're all shocked when... Uh, I mean, I don't even know if we're shocked anymore. I don't, I, I'm not shocked anymore. But, you know, when, when a pastor, you know, that has a great ministry and a thriving ministry or a big church or someone that, you know, that you knew, you find out that they got called up in some kind of fault, either a, you know, sexual sin or they were stealing money or they were doing this or doing that. And, you know, and it's like, well, how can they do that? And they walk into church and their churches are growing and people are getting saved. And, but yet behind the scenes, it's because the gospel is the power of God in and of itself. And the gospel, and even through all of us who are all imperfect people, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the vessel that gives the gospel may be flawed, but if they're preaching the true gospel of Jesus, that gospel still has the power to minister life to the person that hears it and bring them to faith in Christ. 
And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you know, even those who are preaching Christ for their own selfish gain and ambition, if they're preaching Christ, then I guess it's not all bad because people are still hearing the message. People are still hearing the message because we are all flawed vessels. But the gospel is not flawed. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse to, you know, continue to take advantage of us being flawed vessels and make excuses. But for Paul's mindset here, he says, there are those that see my boldness and are stirred to preach the gospel out of love. And then there are some that think they can seize upon me or my influence or my territory and preach the gospel for selfish ambition. But at the end of the day, Paul says, the important thing is the gospel is being preached and God will judge the hearts and the lives and the motives of those who are preaching the gospel. Um, so then he says that he will continue to rejoice. He will continue to, so even in the face of that, he will continue to rejoice. And then he speaks a little bit about his situation that he's in sitting in prison. You know, sitting in, you know, a prison preaching the gospel, or preaching the gospel, he doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. So we're going to see a little bit more about Paul's mindset here as he approaches this. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He's saying it, it's going to work out for, for my deliverance, one way or the other. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Whether I get out of this prison and I live, I pray Christ will be exalted in my life. Or whether I sit in this prison and I die, I pray that Christ will be exalted even in my death. That no matter what happens to him, he's going to be delivered one way or the other. He'll either get out of prison and keep preaching the gospel, or he'll die and go to be with the Lord. So Paul says, I'm good either way. Paul says, I'm good either way. Then he goes on to say, verse 21, For me to live is Christ. I will live continue, continuing, continuing to follow Christ and live as Christ. And he says, but to die is gain. He says, for me it's gain because... I get out of these situations that I'm in, and I go to be with Jesus. Verse 22, he says, If I am to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So that's his first choice. My first choice, I desire to depart and go be with Christ, and that would free me from all of these earthly situations, and I go get to be with Jesus. I mean, what could be better than that? Then he says, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body, because his ministry will produce fruit and continue to change lives, and that in and of itself is more important for the advance of the gospel than Paul dying. He says, it's more necessary that I remain in the body. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on my account. So there's a little bit of his circumstances. The circumstances of what's going on with the gospel while Paul's sitting in prison, and what his mindset is sitting in prison, whether he's getting out or live or die, in prison and the implications of both of those. The next section we see here in chapter 1, verses 
beginning with verse 27 down through chapter 2, is the Philippian circumstances. Now Paul has talked about his life. Now Paul's going to talk about their circumstance. He's going to exhort them to steadfastness and unity that's going to be based on the example of Jesus Christ himself. So we have the opening exhortation, verses 27 through 30, sets out the two major concerns. Number one, unity among the believers. And number two, in a, it, it's in a setting of opposition and suffering. So Paul's concern about the, the unity of the body inside the church, and he's concerned about the persecution from outside and the opposition from outside of the church. He appeals to unity and to love. He sets forth both the ad- attitudes that destroy unity, which is selfish ambition and vain conceit or vain glory. And he puts those attitudes forward that promote unity, humility, putting others first. And all of this is modeled by Christ. And he's going to appeal to Christ as the example of how they are to live. And that he's not asking the Philippians, and God's not asking the Philippians to do anything different than what Jesus himself had did. And that's the attitude in the mind that they are to supposed to have. So he tells them in verse 27, as we get into the, the scriptures, he tells them in chapter 127, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He encourages them to stand firm. He encourages them to strive together as one. He encourages them in verse 28 to not be frightened by those who would oppose the Philippian believers. And in verse number 29, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now that's not a message we like to preach and hear, but I believe that's important, especially as our world and our society and our culture here in, in our situation grows even more hostile to our faith and our beliefs. You know, the America really propagated what we call the prosperity gospel, that your health and wealth, and how happy you are, and how much you have, and how good your life is, is a direct reflection of God's favor upon your life. Therefore, if God's favor is upon my life, and I'm doing what I should, then I should have plenty of money, I should have the best stuff, I should you know, not have any problems, I, I should get healing, and I should all of this. And we propagated, really, an American gospel, you know, a, a, a gospel of... of you know, our own prosperity and our own well-being, making it all about us. And out of that mindset has come this, uh, you know, American prosperity gospel and a rejection of any type of hurting, suffering, pain, weakness. And that is not the reality of the setting that the Apostle Paul is preaching in at all. Now, the Bible teaches prosperity, but I would dare say prosperity looks a whole lot different than what you would hear about it on television. 
Prosperity is so much deeper of a spiritual condition of somebody's life than it is the reflection of a person's material possessions. You know, I, 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 would, I would dare say those are the things that is most important. You know, what does the Scripture itself say? What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? So I don't believe that poverty or prosperity is an indication of God's blessings. You know, on the other side of that, you know, maybe way back in the Great Depression, the church was teaching, you know, that poverty is a sign of blessing from God, you know, and there are, you know, monks and people that take a vow of, of poverty. And, you know, so I think you go to either of those extremes. I mean, we've all know people that are very prosperous and people that, you know, as material possessions, you know, are living in poverty, but we've known both to be spiritually rich. And yet we've known both in both positions to be, you know, very wealthy and living in poverty to be, to be far away from Christ. So suffering is not something that we like to talk about. Now it's a reality that the other 90% of the world and the other 99% of history, and as far as Christian history, has had to deal with. Because Christianity has been a religion from the beginning that has been built really on persecution. I mean, built on the lives of those who have given their life for the advance of the gospel. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. He's telling them, God's called you to believe in him, but he's also called you to suffer for him. You know, and that's not an easy thing to say. And I would, I would dare to say that that's the mandate for the church, because the church in and of itself, nature is to go against the mindset and the things of the world. You know, therefore, we shouldn't think that we're going to make best friends with the world around us. And he's encouraging the Philippians in this, and he's showing them, here's how you live as the people of God in the midst of the persecution and the suffering. So he says, God's called you to believe in him and to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had, now hear that I still have. So they're both suffering. Chapter 2, then he begins in chapter 2. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any sharing of the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. And Here's how Paul wants them to make his joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And he encourages them to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or vain glory or empty glory, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Now that is a mouthful right there. You know, and his major focus is oneness through humility. And we talked about that last week, and we talked about that when we talked about Ephesians. When we talked about the church in Ephesus, where they were Jew and Gentile coming, you know, into one body. And there was one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And they were to live. The linchpin was love of their relationship. And the body was joined together by the, the joint, the relationships that supply. The same thing he's speaking of here that the sake of the gospel depends upon the sake of the unity of the church. 
The sake of their testimony depends on the sake of the unity of the church. So he says, having like-minded, same love, same spirit, one mind, nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain glory, in humility, valuing others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interest of others. And really in the ancient world, you know, the type of humility that Paul is speaking of here was not something to be desired. It's not something to be desired at all. This type of humility in the ancient world was seen as weakness. The characteristic of inferiors, the characteristic of slaves and those who have been kicked down to the bottom rungs of society. But Paul's saying in the world, that's how they see it. Because the world, the, the pagan nations, they, they are built on places of power and position and honor and fame built upon the backs of others, those that use others to gain their power. But for Jesus and his disciples, Jesus is saying, we are totally different. And we're totally different. And we have a totally different attitude because our God, our example, our Savior had a totally different attitude. So now he's going to show us the attitude of Jesus and what is really in poem form here. So really this is a poem that sticks out here right in the middle of of this passage. And he encourages the believers to have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, has this, have the same mindset as Jesus. Now, let me read through this, and then we'll go back and make some comments on it. But there are three parts you're going to see. You're going to see the pre-existence of Jesus. You're going to see the incarnation of Jesus. And you're going to see the exaltation of Jesus. How Jesus pre-existed with God, who he was before, him coming to earth, being made and being born, and how he was exalted. So it says about Christ, who being in the very nature, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's what the, the NIV says. Uh, you know, our traditional reading in the King James, you know, if you grew up on the King James, says, you know, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery there is really something that is grasp for one's own personal advantage. You know, it's something that I'm taking for my own personal advantage and my personal gain. That's why newer translations translate it, you know, something to be exploited or something to be used for your own advantage. In essence, it's saying that Jesus is God in God's very nature, his very nature of God. He's equal with God, but his equality, he did not seize it for his own advantage. He didn't say, I'm God, here I am, everybody bow down, or I'm going to start zapping people with lightning bolts. Yeah. He didn't do that. Now, if I was God, I probably would have, you know, at least zapped a couple. You know, you, you got you to get a couple for good measure. And uh, at least to establish fear, you know, at least out of fear. I heard a, uh, this is very tongue-in-cheek and facetious and funny, but uh, we were, I was in a leadership conference years ago, and he said, he said, all you pastors in, that, that are going into a brand new church, he said, your first act of going into the church, go into the church, kill a deacon, and hang him up in the lobby and say, let this be a sign unto you. <laughs> he said, and you will gain everybody's respect. Yeah. 
course, he was being joking on that, obviously. But Jesus didn't come down and say, here I am, look who I am, and thunder and lightning and power. Even though he was equal with God, even though he was, even though he was God, he didn't come and use his equality with God for his own advantage. He used his equality with God to show us what true divinity is like and what God is like. So, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Notice that God became obedient to death. He humbled and submitted himself to the place where he would let other people kill him. Think about that. The God who could have called 10,000 legions of angels down on the cross humbled himself and became obedient to the place where he would let those he created kill him and hang him on a cross. But in doing that, he's actually giving his life for them. Powerful stuff. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here he's using Jesus, and he's encouraging the Philippian church, have the same mindset that Jesus had. If Jesus had the mindset of I am equal with God, I am God, I have pre-existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But yet, his equality with God, he didn't use it for his own selfish ambition. He used it to empty himself to become like a servant. So he's encouraging his living church, don't, be, don't follow selfish ambition. Be like Jesus, who willingly became like a servant. He's encouraging the Philippian church, don't seek after your own glory, which is empty. Don't seek after your own glory. You know, you watch this stuff sometimes with people and the pomp and the circumstance, and people think they're so important. People think they're so important. And people chase empty glory. So he's saying the one that had glory, Jesus, the only one that was worthy and had glory, emptied himself of that glory. So don't you try to seek to fill yourself with your own empty glory. Use Jesus as the example. He didn't use his equality with God for his own ambition, but he became a man. 100% God, 100% fully man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even to the cross. And it's through the cross, it's through his persecution, his suffering, his mockery, his death. All this is about his humiliation Theologians call it his humiliation. It's through him being willing to be hung, completely exposed on a cross, mocked for all of humanity to see. It says that's how God exalted him. God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him a name that is above every name. So he's saying the true way to for God exalting you is through humbling yourself. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul is saying, be like Jesus. Have this mindset. Be of one mind, one spirit, one love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain glory because the one who who could have had his own way and the one that had his own glory emptied himself of all of it. That he would come and be humiliated, but yet he would be exalted by the Father in heaven. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 18. Verses 12 through 18. Saying, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do of his. Keep working out that salvation. Keep living for Christ. Keep being who you're supposed to be. Keep following the Holy Spirit. For God is working in you, and God is working in you his will and his good pleasure. Um, and then he, he continues to encourage them to um, you know, be shine as lights in the world. Don't do things with grumbling and, and complaining or arguing. Uh, he encourages them to continue to live out this, this unity. Um, beginning in verse 19, going down through verse 30, we find here what's next regarding their circumstances. In, in this section, we're not going to take time to really read this, um, he talks about his desire to send Timothy to the church in his absence uh, and how faithful Timothy has been to Paul. Of course, Timothy is a son in the faith of Paul, so he talks about how faithful Timothy was and how he's going to send Timothy. He talks about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has brought to Paul the gift, uh, and Epaphroditus became sick, deathly sick. Uh, but God spared his life. God showed mercy. God healed him. And now Epaphroditus will come back to the church at Ephesus. So really he's dealing with some of those internal matters there of Timothy coming to them and Epaphroditus coming uh, to them and how they are to receive Timothy and Epaphroditus. When we come into chapter 3, when we come into chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, he starts with a warning here. And even though there is not a large Jewish influence here, Paul still warns them about these Judaizers that have plagued Paul everywhere he's gone. Um, he's warned about these Judaizers who would try to, again, bring them under the law and carry them away from the true gospel of Christ. Uh, so he says in chapter 3 and verse number 2, uh, watch, out for those, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Then he says in verse number 3, for it is we... Who are the circumcision? Now, again, there's a lot of theological implications to this. Uh, first of all, in verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. Well, dogs are what Jews call Gentiles. Now, Paul flips the script, and he's calling these Judaizers dogs. These evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, the ones that want you to be circumcised. He says, for it is we, the, the believers, who are the circumcision. He's, he's saying... In essence, he's, and this is why they wanted to kill Paul. He's saying, we are the true Israel. Because Israel was known as the circumcision. He says, it's we who are the circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit, and who boast in Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, although 
I myself have reasons to have such confidence. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives the list of his Jewish acclimates, his Jewish accomplishments, his Jewish heritage. And he's saying, if any of these Judaizers want to come in and compare resumes, here's my resume. He says in verse number five, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. He says, as concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. He says, as for the righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. And we've talked about this, you know, on Sunday morning recently in the past couple of weeks. But Paul's saying, here's who I am. If you're judging by natural where I come from, what I've done, I stack up against anybody. I am, I am as, as, as Israel as you can get. I am as keeping the law as you can get. I zealously persecuted the church. Then verse 7, he says, but whatever were gains to me, here's that laying aside selfish ambition again. Whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for Christ. I consider everything a loss. Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain grace. And anything that was gain, anything to puff myself up, anything to give me my own glory, if it was gained to me, if it was in the Paul column, it was out of the Christ column. He said, so I want to lose everything in the Paul column so that everything can be credited to Christ in my life. He says in verse number eight, my desire is to be found in him, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of Christ. And he says, I want to know Christ. Now, this is a guy that had accomplished a lot. But yet his still one desire is to be found in Christ and to know Christ and to have fellowship with Christ. Fellowship in his sufferings. Fellowship in the the resurrection. I want to have fellowship with him. And he says, I haven't already attained everything I want to for Christ. But this famous passage, he says in verse number 13, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I forget those things that are behind and I press forward. Therefore, he says in verse 17, join together in following my example. He encourages them to keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He warns them in verse 18. He warns them of those who would be enemies of the cross of Christ. And he warns them that their end is destruction, but your end, who stays faithful, is salvation. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And it says eventually that God will bring everything under Christ's control. So he says, keep your eyes where they should be. He says, follow my example, follow others who live as we do. Don't follow the enemies of the cross. cross. Don't glory in their shame or their glory is in their shame. He says, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's why Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If the world kills me, I have another world to go to. 
If this, if this government of Rome kills me, I have, a, I have another kingdom. I have a kingdom I'm a part of where I will never die. Our citizenship is in heaven. So he says when he comes to chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters who I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm. When we hit chapter 4 and verse number 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He here is exhorting them to unity, gentleness, and excellence. He tells them, don't be anxious for anything, but pray about everything. Let your petition be known to God with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. Uh, and when you do this, the peace of God that transcends everything will be in your hearts and will keep your hearts and mine. So he says, listen, because you're suffering persecution, because you may have lost, he said, I've lost everything. I've suffered persecution. Jesus, they put him on a cross. He lost everything to come to earth to, to suffer. So keep your eyes focused on moving ahead. Don't look back at the things that are behind, but keep pressing forward to Christ. Keep following my example, knowing that you're a citizen of heaven knowing that Christ is the ultimate king to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Stand firm in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, and here's another famous passage, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think on such things. Whatever you've learned or heard or received or seen in me, put it in the practice and the God of peace will be with you. So he's saying that's how we live in the midst of this world of suffering and persecution. We live with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. We live in this world, not being influenced by this world, but living in this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven knowing that Christ is the ultimate king. And he says he thanks them for caring about him in his circumstance. And he says here in verse number 11, this is another continuing the well-meaning, well-familiar passage. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. You know, and I think, going back to talking about, you know, the, the prosperity gospel mindset or whatever, you know, we, we live in a world, and I grew up with it, and my kids grew up with it, and, you know, it's maybe because our, our parents, you know, wanted us to live better than, than they did and gave us more. What they had to work for, they gave to us because they didn't want us to have to go through some of the things that, that they went through. But yet it's formed in our society where we just have to have more. And we have to have more. We have to have the latest. And we have to have the greatest. And we have to keep striving for things. And, you know, prosperity's good and poverty's bad. And you got to do what you can to, to, to make this and to have this standard of living. And, but Paul says... My secret to life is being content in whatever situation that I'm in. Being content. You can be just as happy in a two-bedroom house as you can in a five-bedroom house. 
Because happiness doesn't come from the number of bedrooms you have in your house. If anything causes you more problems, because there's more rooms to vacuum <laughs> or sweep up. You can be just, in fact, I, I, you can be even more happier when things are simple than when things are, are complicated. So that's the secret, Paul. And I think that's something that we need to really be teaching our next generations is it's not about gaining this status. That's not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all is living with love and contentment and at peace in your heart when you're constantly pursuing, not the heavenly things, but when you're constantly pursuing the earthly things, it is an endless, empty pursuit that just causes more frustration, more heartache, more arguments than just getting back to the simplicity of living in the goodness of God. That if I have a lot, praise God. If I have little, praise God. I know I have learned the secret to being content that whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to live with contentment. And he follows that up by saying, I can do all this. I can do all things through Christ, through Him who strengthens me. You know, that verse is one that, you know, we, we use that verse for a lot of stuff. You know, that, that is my wife's life verse, you know, and I always tell her because she's always like, well, you always put things in context and take away everything from me that I'm trying to, you know. In the context, they're talking about living in the midst of persecution. And whatever situation that comes your way with Christ, you can face that situation. You know, my, my daughter, you know, she, when she does gymnastics, she always has a little something. She always writes down, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And we don't have the heart to tell her. Paul probably wouldn't talk about gymnastics, you know, but <laughs> I definitely don't want to steal her encouragement, you know. But it's, it's not just. But I also want to teach her the principle here that whether you get a gold medal or whether you finish 10th, you can be content knowing you did your best in Christ where you can do all things. You can face success and you can face failures and setbacks because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Um, he thanks them for sharing in his troubles and he's kind of closing out here. He again talks about that they were with him early on supporting him, that when no other church supported Paul, they supported Paul uh, in his time of need. Um, he's not after their gifts, uh, and, but because of their generosity, you know, he says, and my God will meet your needs according to his written. And that's another one that's going to be taken out of context. Well, my God will meet all of our needs. Well, Paul's saying, because you've shared with me in the gospel, because you've given to me and you've sacrificed for me, you've met my needs, therefore God will meet your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Um, usually the final greetings aren't fun to read, but I, I, do, I do just want to point this out because it's just interesting that Paul adds to this. In verse 21, he says, Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send greetings to you. And he adds, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He says, there are even those in Caesar's household that are believers that sends greetings to the church. I, that, that's just a cool little thing that, that Paul adds in there. And he ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So you can see Paul's uh, heart in this. You can see how important the church was to him. You can see how much their partnership in the gospel meant to him. Uh, you could see his concern for them, their concern for him, and how he desires and how he encourages them to live like Jesus and live with the mindset of Jesus in the midst of this world.